Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening. This is The Source, and I'm Kaylin Collins. An extraordinary new Israeli offensive is underway in the skies of Gaza tonight. Much of it is playing out right before our very eyes. CNN cameras captured these images that you're seeing here. Scenes of flares raining down over the night sky in Gaza. There appears to be a smoke scurrying that is covering the ground, potentially suggesting the possible movement of troops in that area. The Israeli military says that it has completely surrounded Gaza City tonight. All of this is coming as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared with Israeli troops earlier today, saying, and I'm quoting him now, nothing will stop us. That, despite the fact that Secretary of State Antony Blinken is flying over to Israel right now, in part to press for a pause, at least a brief one, in the fighting so that hostages can get out and aid can potentially get in. All of this is coming as Hamas is still firing on Israel tonight. They have been doing so repeatedly since those October 7th attacks. Those rockets are being intercepted, I should note, by the Iron Dome. And given that, I want to get straight to CNN's Ed Lavendera, who is live in Tel Aviv, Israel. Ed, what are you hearing tonight about this real uptick in activity that we are seeing over the skies of Gaza tonight? Well, it was intense for several hours, just a few hours ago, uh, there in the northeastern part of Gaza, not far from where our colleague Nick Robertson has been reporting throughout the afternoon and evening. Uh, but this is some of the most intense firefighting we have seen uh, over the last couple of days. But we know that the ground operation inside of Gaza has intensified uh, quite a bit throughout the day. Isra Israeli officials saying today that they have surrounded Gaza City. Uh, they say that their intent right now is to dismantle the Hamas military operation there in, in Gaza. And of course, all of this complicated by the very fact that uh, Hamas military runs out of these elaborate and uh, tunnel systems that stretch for dozens of miles all around uh, northern Gaza in particular. And that complicates things, especially uh, because these tunnels are built under civilian populations. And that's why Israel has come under a great deal of criticism because of the civilian casualties in this this uh, operation, but that has continued to intensify. You saw the, the firefight erupting there uh, just a few hours ago in, in northeastern uh, Gaza. The objective and exactly what was accomplished here this evening is not clear at this point. Perhaps that will change tomorrow as we learn more about exactly what uh, the Israeli operation was about, what they had hoped to achieve there. But we have n not real clear details on exactly what was achieved there tonight. But uh, dramatic images and obviously a very intense firefight that we saw unfold for quite some time tonight.
Yeah, it's much more intense than what we've seen any of the days over the last several weeks. But given what we saw there and Israeli forces now surrounding Gaza City, Ed, is there a sense of how much the ground invasion is ramping up given that pressure that Israel is clearly facing? It's growing pressure, too, for at least some kind of pause in the fighting. Well, as is, you know, calls from around the world are uh, calling on Israel to uh, either pause or uh, call for a ceasefire. It's clear from Israeli officials tonight that that is not uh, doesn't appear that that's something that's going to happen. Israeli officials saying that they are trying to inflict maximum pressure on the Hamas military operation. Um, as we mentioned, you know, they have they say they have uh, the Gaza city surrounded, um, and and that will uh, you know change things dramatically. The President Netanyahu, as you mentioned there. Uh, off the top uh, saying today that nothing will stop us. So we're not getting any clear indication that Israeli forces are intent of slowing down uh, their their operation in, into Gaza uh, anytime soon, especially here in the days ahead. Yeah. Ed Lavendera and Tel Aviv, thank you for analysis on what is unfolding, what this could be. Joining me tonight is Lieutenant General Mark Schwartz, a retired special ops commander who served as the U.S. security coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Authority. He's also a senior fellow at the RAND Corporation, I should note, along with CNN military analyst, retired Army Major General Spider Marks is also here. So glad to have both of you. General Schwartz, let me start with you because, of course, as we are seeing this intense activity not long after Israel did confirm that they had encircled the city, what's your read on what Israel is doing tonight? Well, I think uh, Nick earlier characterized it very well, um, as you just did uh, before uh, Spider and I came on. So the the use of you know the the flares and the significant smoke you saw combined with the the aerial uh, interdiction that was going on. Typically, that happens when ground forces are reinforcing or repositioning forces. So they want to use the smoke to conceal their movements, obviously, and they use the flares primarily to make sure that. The smoke that they're putting down and as well as the the other fires that they were putting down are effective so i think it's correct that you're probably going to see in the next 24 hours when the sun comes up here that uh, a significant reinforcement of uh israeli ground forces did occur over you know the, this past evening as well as uh, they're continuing to cordon off as was uh, reported gaza city that, that's my read of what's taken place the last 12 to 18 hours today and given that, General Marks, if that's what Israel is doing here, kind of trying to create this smoke screen on the ground so they can move those forces, what does that signal to you about what's next for, for this ground operation as Israel is referring to it? They won't call it a ground invasion, but, I mean, we can see what's happening on the ground. Sure, it's a, it's a ground operation. And as Mark has described, when the smoke clears tomorrow, if you flew a drone on top of Gaza City, you would see that there would be strong points around the city that create this outer cordon around the city. And then you would see operations taking place within an inner cordon, outer cordon to protect what's taking, taking place inside. So you've got ingress and egress that you want to try to control because you realize that the urban operation, which has to concentrate on trying to recover hostages, and that requires incredible, very deliberate very patient operations because of the tunnel network that's been described by everyone, which is really internecine. It's got the hostages probably moving around in there under the control of Hamas. And you have very precise operations 
by the Israelis to go after political and military leadership of Hamas to try to kill or capture. Mostly this is going to be a kill mission. So realizing that this is urban terrain, this will suck up men. You need to clear areas and then you have to hold those areas or Hamas will simply roll back in. So you're going to see very deliberate operations on the part of the Israelis. And it's going to be an acknowledgement on their part that they're going to be there. This isn't a quick operation in and a quick operation out. They will have to clear and they're going to have to hold until they're satisfied that their objective has been met. Well, given that description, General Schwartz, I mean, you have deep expertise in this area and obviously the, the sense of what is awaiting these Israeli forces in Gaza City seems to be quite brutal, to say the least, this kind of urban warfare. Do you believe that the Israeli forces, these that are going in, certainly some of them, but, but is the vast majority prepared for what they're going to be facing? I mean, they're going to have to differentiate between civilians, Hamas fighters. We know that they, they use civilians as shields. What's that going to look like for them? Yeah, Caitlin, you're you're correct. Uh, you know the Israelis have some specialized forces and special operations forces. Specialized forces that are, you know, deal in underground warfare, and their special operations forces and some of their infantry have done extensive training in um, urban combat operations. But as, as Spider rightfully points out, these types of operations in the size of Gaza City that has to be deliberately cleared very methodically is going to absorb a significant amount of, of ground forces, I, I think, in, in the thousands. And, you know, I know from experience that the majority of the Israeli defense forces are not trained to the degree that you would want to be going into a fight like this, which will also, I think, set the tempo for the operations. And certainly, um, you know, as I, as I would also highlight split second decisions are going to be ma be made by very young soldiers as they're clearing you know these rooms and, and and being caught under fire and so as a result the Palestinian civilians that have not been able to leave there's a a likelihood that we're going to have you know killed and wounded as a result of that yeah and we know there's still a lot of them who didn't evacuate who weren't able to go but given that, given the concerns, we're hearing so much outrage that's growing in the international community about that civilian death toll. And General Marks, we're seeing Secretary Blinken on his way to Israel right now to meet with the prime minister. Uh, part of what he said about what this trip is going to look like, here's how he described it before taking off. We've seen in recent days, Palestinian civilians continue to bear the brunt of this, uh, this action. Uh, and it's important that the United States is committed to making sure everything possible is done to protect civilians. So they're pushing for what they're calling a humanitarian pause, not an all-out ceasefire, because they say that would give Hamas time to regroup. A, a pause. I mean, is there a real distinction there, General Marks? Well, I, I would tell the secretary, and he understands this. Look, the first conversation that we, we need to have is with Hamas and say, stop holding the Palestinians hostage. Stop using them as human shields. Look, this is not a video game. And the narrative increasingly becomes that this becomes an antiseptic type of an engagement where we can delineate very precisely civilians and we go after Hamas. This is an incredible, messy battlefield that needs to be able to have humanitarian assistance come in and be used for the purpose of taking care of the Palestinians. But at the same time, there is no tactically feasible way 
for the IDF to stop what they are doing right now and take a pause. They become targets. They give up the advantage that they've achieved on the ground, and they're not about to do that. So both can occur. Both humanitarian assistance can occur and military operations can, can occur simultaneously. That's what needs to have to happen. But we've got to get away from this notion that it can be a very clean, very neatly sliced type of a battlefield. That's not possible. General Spider Marks, General Mark Schwartz, thank you both. I'm sure we'll be speaking to you both a lot over the coming days. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. A member of Israel's government is going to join us here next with our questions. Of course, President Biden and his top aides, they have been warning Israel about that growing outcry over the suffering that is happening in Gaza. Also tonight, the U.S. promised help for Israel, but the House just passed a funding bill that's facing a veto threat from President Biden and a no thanks from the Senate. So what? Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We're keeping a close eye on the skies over Gaza tonight. Following that dramatic intensification of bombardment by the Israel Defense Forces, this is all playing out. Secretary of State Blinken is on his way to Israel right now. When he was pressed on whether or not he believes Israel is showing restraint when it comes to this offensive, he reiterated that Israel has a right to defend itself. And also, and I'm quoting Blinken now, the responsibility to do everything possible to protect civilians. Airstrikes on United Nations refugee camps like Jabalia have prompted concerns about the war crimes from the United Nations. Israel says that Hamas is using those places and those civilians as human shields, covering its terrorist bunkers and tunnels that it's using to wage this war. I want to bring in former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Danny Danone, who is also an influential member of, of parliament for the Likud party, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Ambassador, thank you for being here tonight. Can you tell us what is happening in Gaza tonight? Are we going to wake up tomorrow and see that Israeli ground forces have reinforced themselves inside Gaza? Hey, Caitlin, we continue with the ground operation. Our goals are still the same goals, to eradicate Hamas and to bring back home the hostages. It's almost a month when we have 30 babies in the hands of Hamas uh, and many families in the hands of Hamas. So we continue. Uh, we still try to convince the population to move south. And I think mostly 90% of the civilian population left northern Gaza. So we are fighting with Hamas. But actually, it's a very difficult to fight with them because they are cowards. When they had to kill babies and women in Israel, they fought with them. But today, when we are coming in, they are hiding in the tunnels and they are waiting for our troops. So it's going to take time until we find them and kill them. So, but why now? Why are we seeing such an intense bombardment play out over the skies of Gaza? So, so basically, that, that's part of the, the ground operation. You see the Air Force working together with the, the ground forces, moving very slowly, very carefully. Uh, when we locate, when we have the intel about the location of a Hamas headquarters, we, we attack uh, and, it's, you know, we paid a heavy price. Uh, we had casualties, unfortunately, but we are committed to go all the way 
until we finish the job. Was this attacking a Hamas headquarters tonight? Is that what that, that activity was? So ba basically either we attack Hamas headquarters and that's what we did in the last uh, uh, hours. Uh, and mainly when we know about those places, when you see the explosives, usually it's, it's, you, it means that there was something there, a storage of explosives, or we found like a place where they were hiding the rockets. That's why you see big explosives. Okay, so you're attacking Hamas targets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and we have thousands of targets in Gaza. Gaza became a hub for terror. They took all the weapons and funds they could achieve. And today, we, what we find there, unfortunately, that they, they build a terror state in Gaza. Secretary Blinken is on his way to, to you right now, to Israel, to, to meet with the prime minister. He wants to call for a pause in the fighting. They would like for hostages to be able to get out, for aid to be able to get in. Is Israel open to having another pause? So I don't get it. Why we need to speak about a pause or a ceasefire? We had one until October 7th. We had a ceasefire with Hamas and they broke it. They came in, massacred 1,400 Israelis. So now it's the time that we will eliminate them. So if there will be a pause in order to release hostages, we can discuss that. But to have a ceasefire, what will happen then? They will regroup. They will be ready to attack us again. It will be a mistake and we're going to pay a heavy price. Every hour you give them to regroup, it means more casualties to our troops. Okay, but you do... You are saying that Israel is open to a temporary pause. How many hostages would, Israel, would Hamas need to be prepared to release in order for Israel to agree to a temporary pause? Is there a number? No, we, we are not uh, conducting negotiations uh, like that with them, but we, we know that they are trying to play with us. If they will release hostages, we will uh, allow it you know, to happen, and we will make sure it will happen safely for both sides. But we will not let them maneuver the war with the hostages. We are committed to achieve both goals, to defeat them and release the hostages. It's complicated. It creates a lot of dilemmas to our troops, but I, I'm confident we can achieve it. Secretary Blinken also made clear that what he is concerned about is what happens after Israel is done with this operation in Gaza. When he arrives there in just a matter of hours, does Israel have a plan now for what comes next? First, I think it's very smart to start the discussion about the day after uh, who will be running Gaza. We know that Hamas will not be there. They either surrender or will die. And I think it's a legitimate uh, debate. And I think we should involve regional players uh, about the day after. Uh, and we are, we are open to, to listen to his ideas, to discuss it. We, we want to, to live peacefully here. We have no intention to stay in Gaza. We don't want to run the, the lives of the Palestinians there. So I think it's an important discussion, and I think it should involve not only Israel, but also other countries in the region. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that there's not a plan yet, but you are prepared to start discussing one. Is that right, Ambassador? That, that is correct. We, we are talking about it. We have internal discussions, and I think the Secretary's visit is important because it will require other players to be involved. And I think he is capable of, of putting the, everything together, even though now we are focused on the military action, but at the same time, we are open to discuss it with our partners. Okay, Ambassador Danny Janone, thank you for staying up. I know it's very late there. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you very much, Caitlin.
Billions of dollars in aid for Israel was just pushed through on Capitol Hill by the Republican-led House, but only for Israel, not any money for Ukraine. This is setting up a major clash with both the Senate and the White House. Two congressmen who voted to pass that bill from different sides of the aisle are here next. The House of Representatives passed $14.3 billion in emergency aid for Israel tonight, with the newly elected House Speaker tying that aid to cuts in other government spending. But that bill is not going anywhere after Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that they will not be taking it up in the Senate, where there is a bipartisan support that is building for combining assistance to Israel with Ukraine. I'm joined tonight by Republican Congressman Mike Lawler and Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz, both of whom voted for that bill tonight. And I'm so glad you're both here. Congressman Lawler, let me start with you, because a standalone bill sending aid to Israel with no spending cuts probably would have passed. Why didn't Republicans do that? Look, the speaker made a determination, uh, obviously, uh, to advance aid to Israel, $14.3 billion. Uh, but we need to pay for it. Uh, I know a lot of my Democratic colleagues are saying this is about conditioning aid for Israel for the first time. It's not conditioning it. We're going to support Israel. We're going to pass legislation uh, that provides Israel with all the support that they need financially and militarily. Uh, but we have to pay for it. We're dealing with a existential crisis in this country approaching $34 trillion in debt. Um, only in the United States Congress would uh, showing how you're going to pay for this be a problem. But it does add to the deficit, does it not? If this had passed as is with the IRS spending cuts, does that not add to the deficit, Congressman Lawler? With all due respect, uh, the CBO scoring uh, has often been wrong. Uh, and the reality is that cutting spending uh, is not going to add to the deficit here. We have a responsibility to pass aid to Israel the speaker put that forth on the floor today. It garnered bipartisan support. Uh, obviously, the Senate has their idea of what they're going to do, and we're going to negotiate and go from there. Uh, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really, frankly, understand all the hubbub about this. At the end of the day, uh, we're still going to have to pay for this one way or the other, whether it's included a, as a standalone bill or uh, if we show the pay for in the bill. Yeah, well, so I, I... we're going to have to get there somehow. I should note, everyone always criticizes the CBO when they say something that they don't like, both parties do. So Congressman well, Moskowitz- with all, due, with all due respect, Caitlin, the CBO has continually revised their estimates time and again. So it's not a function of criticizing it when you don't like it. It's a reality but of it's the a CBO. Pretty, it's a pretty big number that it would add to the deficit. It's not like it's, it's within the margin of error. But Congressman Moskowitz, you were obviously a Democrat. Democratic leaders did not want you to vote for this bill, but you did anyway, despite having called it a political trap. Tell me why. Well, first of all, it was a political trap. And you don't have to ask me. You can just ask the NRCC, who the very day they came out with this bill posted Democrats are going to have to choose between Israel and the IRS. And so that's why I was calling that out. I don't think that uh, the speaker should have done this. I mean, this is the speaker's first full week. He's talked about trying to bring the house together. We're having these international issues. Obviously, this is a national security issue. Israel's our number one ally. There was no reason to condition aid. There was no reason to make this political. There was no reason to divide the house. It could have been a real unifying moment, uh, but instead he chose the other way. I voted for it because my grandmother's part of the kinder transport out of Germany as a child. 
She told me about these things that are happening in the world right now, and it sounded like something that happened a long time ago. You go to the Holocaust Museum, you see these pictures, you hear these stories, you see people tattooed with numbers on their, on their arms, and you think, this could never happen. And we saw the largest amount of Jews killed in a single day on October 7th. And since then, we have seen anti-Semitism around the world, Jews gas the Jews, kill the Jews, exterminated Jews, in protests around, uh, around this country and cities and other cities around the world, on university campuses, Jews can't even walk to class without getting accosted. And so for me, this was a personal vote. It's unfortunate that they made it political. I'm happy that Chuck Schumer will not be taking this bill up. Uh, as you pointed out, and I know sometimes that we like to politicize the CBO around here, but obviously the CBO said it won't offset the cost of this. Listen, I'm for spending less. The American family is spending less. I'm happy for government to spend less. We also should have tax parity in this country. I'm happy the speaker is going to do a budget commission, but this wasn't the time to do that. Not on Israel, not in their time of need. Congressman Lawler, what's your response to that? Look, I respect my colleague from Florida. Obviously, we have a bill tomorrow uh, that we have worked on together, uh, to the SHIP Act, which will increase uh, secondary sanctions on Iranian petroleum. Uh, so, you know, we'll agree to disagree on this insofar as uh, the spending offsets. The reality is uh, the White House has asked for over $100 billion in supplemental aid. It's going to have to be paid for. So, you know, whether it's included in the bill or figured out down the road, uh, the reality is it has to be paid for. No municipality or state in America could just put a bill forward without showing how you're going to pay for it. What the speaker is saying is, look, we have nearly $34 trillion in debt in this country. This administration has spent over $5 trillion in new money over the last two years. It's unsustainable. It is the reason that we had record inflation. Uh, we have to rein in spending. That's why we're going through the appropriations process. We support aid to Israel. It is bipartisan. Uh, there is broad support for yeah. it. We can disagree on how we're going to pay for it. The reality is we have to pay for it. And I think anybody acting as though, uh, you know, showing that you need to pay for it in a bill is somehow uh, a major crisis, uh, I think just highlights the problem in Washington where people think you don't need to pay for things. You can just spend unlimited. Yeah. You know, well, and, Caitlin, if I may, let me add something to that, ahead. though. And, and listen, the congressman and I agree a lot more than we disagree. We have a number of bills we're working on together. But, but, but one of the, the precedents here that the speaker is starting, is, I think, is extremely is dangerous. And look, we do need to learn how to pay for things around here. I, I don't disagree with my colleague on that. But the next time there's a hurricane in Florida and we need a supplemental, the next time there's Superstorm Sandy in, in New York and New Jersey, the next time there's Hurricane Harvey in Texas, the next time there's an earthquake or a fire in, in California, the next time there's a fire in Hawaii, the next time there's something in Guam, the next time there's something in the Virgin Islands or, 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 or Puerto Rico, are, are we going to have to demand at that point that we do pay-fors on emergency supplementals in community times of need? That's the real question. That's the real concern that, that many of my colleagues and myself share. Yeah, and of course, these pay-fors, I should note, they're not going to happen. I mean, they got passed in the House today, but it's not actually going to go anywhere because the Senate's not taking it up. The White House has said they would veto it. But I understand the point of principle. Well, but I do want to talk with all about... Due, with all due respect, Caitlin, the Senate Majority Leader has said that before, and the White House has said that before, and yet they passed uh, the D.C. crime bill that we put forth in the House after their comments But Democrats had so overwhelmingly does, started to support that. It does that. happen but uh, Let's talk about why you're both themselves. here tonight, because you don't often see a Republican and a Democrat standing side by side doing an interview. The two of you have introduced this bipartisan legislation and Congressman Lawler, as you mentioned, it imposes new sanctions targeting 
Iranian oil imports. How confident are you, Congressman Moskowitz, that, that this is actually going, if it passes the House, that it actually is going to be to become law? Well, listen, I think you're going to see bi uh, extreme bipartisan support tomorrow on, on this piece of legislation. It has almost 90 Democrats that have co-sponsored this. I expect an overwhelming majority of Republicans to vote for it as well. So it's going to get the two-thirds it needs uh, to pass on suspension. And so I think the Senate should take this up. I think we need to send a strong message uh, to Iran and the world that we're not going to tolerate the world's largest sponsor of terror getting around current sanctions, making money by selling their oil to China, and then funding Hezbollah and Hamas and other destabilizing forces around the world. There is no doubt right now that Hamas, Russia, China, North Korea are all talking to each other. And so this is extremely important. We have to cut off all sorts of financing, and this is one way to do that. Congressman Lawler, do you think, what's your message to the Senate on getting this done? Look, China is the biggest purchaser of Iranian petroleum, and Iranian petroleum sales are up 59% over the last three years. Uh, they are uh, using these funds to fund terrorism, to fund Hamas, to fund Hezbollah, to fund other terrorist organizations with the sole purpose of wiping Israel off the face of the earth. We need to impose stricter sanctions on uh, the buyers of Iranian petroleum, starting with China. Uh, these secondary sanctions are critically important. Uh, and so I think it is time for Congress to act, uh, to make it very clear to China, to Russia, to Iran, uh, that we will not tolerate uh, their uh, malign influence in the world and the conduct that they have engaged in uh, that has undermined and destabilized the free world, uh, and especially with the most recent terrorist attacks on the state of Israel uh, and, and the attempt to annihilate the Jewish people. Uh, we will not tolerate it. We will not stand for it. And that's why it's imperative that Congress pass the SHIP Act and the Biden administration sign it into law. Congressman Mike Lawler, Congressman Jared Moskowitz, thank you both for joining tonight. Thank you. Up next, both of Donald Trump's adult sons were on stand to, on the, the stand today, I should say, at a trial centering around fraud that threatens his entire empire. At first, Eric Trump claimed that he had nothing to do with documents at the heart of the case, but then he was shown emails by prosecutors suggesting otherwise. Everything that happened, that's next. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Moments ago, a court just denied Ivanka Trump's latest request to avoid testifying in the Trump Organization's civil fraud trial that is happening here in New York. This on the same day that Donald Trump's two adult sons sat for hours inside of a courtroom. Both Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, as you can see here, took the stand. They are both accused, along with their father, of falsely inflating the value of company properties. And while the former president has been on a social media branch, not necessarily new, claiming, among other things, that his adult children are being persecuted, it is important to remember who it was, of course, that made a point of putting them in charge of the company just days before he was inaugurated. My two sons, who are right here, 
Don and Eric, are going to be running the company. They are going to be running it in a very professional manner. I'm joined now by Maggie Haberman, CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent for The New York Times. We'll talk about the Ivanka development in a moment. But I mean, just that moment there, I was thinking about it all day today as I was seeing Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. in court. I mean, that was that was almost seven years ago, which is kind of hard to believe. And as they are on the stand talking about their roles, can you just walk everyone through what their roles, I mean, their whole career has kind of been defined by the Trump organization. Yeah. And before Trump had put them in charge, he was grooming his children, including Ivanka Trump, to take over this company that had been going on for several years. They they were trustees of the company. That was that was the, the official title. I think they had uh, some kind of vice presidential title uh, as well prior to that. And I think after that, but basically they were running the company. I will say in reality, uh, according to everyone I have ever spoken with, Don Jr. was far less involved in the day-to-day than his brother Eric. Eric really became the person who was running the company. And I think, Caitlin, that was reflected in part in how much more combative Eric Trump's testimony was in court today. Don Jr.'s was relatively less so. Yeah, I mean, it got increasingly combative over emails, even dating back to 2010, when he was saying, I wasn't involved in that. And then she, you know, the attorney general says that essentially that they provided these false valuations of even the family's estate. I mean, she noted at one point that Donald Trump Jr. had personally certified the financial statements, but they were saying, well, I was just doing this. It was based on the valuations of others, not necessarily me. Right. And there, there was an effort to distance themselves from uh, things that they signed or from decisions that were made. And, and, and we have seen that over and over. And that's also something we've seen Donald Trump do about his own company, it's something we saw him do in his presidency. I was acting on advice of whomever. I suspect you will see that in his upcoming trial on charges of trying to overturn the election results in 2020. Advice of counsel. It is often that, you know, someone else was making these decisions. I don't think for the purpose of the outcome of this trial that any of this testimony matters significantly because the outcome is fairly predetermined. Judge Ngoran yeah. has already issued a partial uh, summary judgment, suggests that Trump uh, Trump Sr. is going to face some problems in trying to keep his company together. But in terms of just having to lay out the guts of their company, I think that this was uncomfortable for both sons. They, they both had some stumbles at the end of the day. I don't think either one of one of either n- neither one had an earth-shattering moment on the yeah. stand. And just before we came on air tonight, we got this news that at least part of the appeal that Ivanka Trump's attorneys filed today, trying to pause the whole trial while they figure out whether or not she has mm-hmm. to testify, ha- has been denied. Right now, she still has to testify next week. She's been fighting it in part, saying that it would be undue hardship because it's. Wednesday, it's in the middle of a school week that she'd have to come to New York to, to do that. What's your sense of why she is fighting testifying? I, I think there are a couple of reasons among them that I think that just the, the whole Trump ethos is fight, 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 delay, delay, delay. Don't forget that Ivanka Trump's testimony before the House Select Committee that was investigating January 6th uh, was played at a public hearing, I think more than one. Mm-hmm. It infuriated former President Trump. I think this creates the potential for some moments that would be, again, very uncomfortable for Ivanka Trump. Now, I think lots of parents of children, she has three children, I think lots of parents with three children um, still are forced to go to court and don't end up just in, in various cases and you know, describe it as an undue hardship, especially somebody with the means that she has. Um, but I think that it is it is not surprising to see her trying to delay. And your latest reporting, all of this is fits into this bigger picture of, and I should know Donald Trump is also going to be on the, the stand, this bigger picture of a second Trump term and what that's going to look like. And I do think that's not something that's talked about enough because right now it's so clear that Trump 
is going to be the nominee. We don't know for sure. Of course, anything could happen. But right now, if it was tomorrow, he would be. And the idea of him potentially having another term he would kind of just be unrestrained. What's your reporting on what that would look like? Yeah, I mean, so look, you are correct that, that elections aren't over until they're over. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment, he has an overwhelming lead in the national polling. And even in Iowa, he is well ahead. And in all the early states, he's well ahead. And so it, there is reason to look at what a second administration would look like. My colleagues, Jonathan Swan and Charlie Savage, and I have been trying to do just that. And we focused this week on a piece about efforts by two key Trump allies, Stephen Miller and Johnny McEntee. Stephen Miller, his policy advisor, I think probably very known to this audience. Johnny McEntee, less so. He Mm -hmm. took over the personnel office in 2020 with a mandate to purge the government of people who were seen as opposed to Trump or trying to stop his agenda. They are trying to find lawyers who could staff a second Trump administration, Um, lawyers who would fill agencies, not just White House counsel, lawyers who would find ways to get him to yes on the kinds of policies that he wants to enact. And as he has actually laid out several of them on his campaign website in some detail, it's a pretty radical agenda. And it would be so notable because lawyers defined the first four years of Trump to a degree because they were kind of the seatbelts, if you want to put it that way. The, the, The guardrails phrase gets used a lot. Look, lawyers... Very conservative lawyers, many of them. Incredibly uh, conservative. Correct. We're telling, we're saying no on things that Trump wanted to push through, particularly on matters um, related to immigration. I mean, that's always going to be a, a big driver with Trump. And so you are now seeing a push to try to get lawyers who will not raise those kinds of uh, objections, who will try to find ways that he can accomplish what he wants. Uh, and we will see what that looks like if he becomes president again. Maggie Haberman, great reporting as always. Thank you. you. We'll be back in a moment. There is breaking news tonight on another major verdict happening here in a courtroom in New York. That's next. Tonight, a verdict for the fallen crypto king, Sam Bankman-Fried. The 31-year-old founder of FTX has now been found guilty on all seven counts of fraud and conspiracy now convicted of stealing billions of dollars from his own cryptocurrency customers, one of the biggest white-collar verdicts that we have seen since Bernie Madoff was sent to prison. More now with CNN national correspondent Jason Carroll. Jason, how long did the jury deliberate before, for, before coming to this guilty verdict tonight? Caitlin deliberated for just about four hours and, as you say, convicted on all seven counts, including wire fraud, securities fraud, commodities fraud. And I have to say, anyone who was watching this trial over the past month or so, really not surprised by this outcome, given the overwhelming amount of evidence that prosecutors presented throughout the course of this trial, including financial documents, which showed fake balance sheets, showing that they tried to show that they had more money than they actually did, incriminating conversations between Bankman Freed and some of his former executives, and testimony from some of his former executives who say he very well knew that he was stealing from his customers and using that money for whatever else that he wanted. Throughout this trial, Caitlin, prosecutors really portrayed this man as someone who was obsessed with greed, someone who was overly ambitious, a man who thought he could be president one day. And what they say basically happened is is that he secretly used FTX, this cryptocurrency exchange that he founded, secretly used customers' money for whatever he wanted. 
it could have been to contribute to a, a political campaign, to buy property, or as they also said, to really prop up Alameda Research, this uh, trading business that he had also founded, which was struggling finance, financially. One of the star witnesses that court watchers were that saw during the course of this trial, his ex-girlfriend, Carolyn Ellison, she's a former CEO uh, from Alameda Research, and she said that he very well knew that they were stealing money from customers, funneling it to other places, that they lied to investors. She said that they lied to auditors. And of course, the man testified himself. Uh, Bankman Freed testified and really tried to present himself his own narrative, showing that he was someone who was trying to make as much money as possible to try to give as much money away to good causes. But he really didn't do himself any favors because upon on cross-examination, when he was asked over and over about specific details about his business, he said, I can't recall or I can't remember. He said that more than 100 times. Jurors just simply didn't buy it, Caitlin. And at the end of the day, what you're looking at here, $8 billion gone lost. That's money that people had for investment, money that people were going to use for their savings. All of that money gone, prosecutors yeah. say, because of this man's greed. Just want to point out that uh, the U.S. attorney came outside court just tonight and said the following about this. They said the government has no patience for fraud and corruption. He will be sentenced on March 28th. And Jason, Caitlin. just before you go, I mean, Given he was at the top, I mean, he was the pinnacle of cryptocurrency. Yeah. What was his reaction in court today when they read that guilty verdict? Well, he was, he was clearly nervous. Before, earlier uh, during the evening, uh, when he was standing in front of the court, he was tapping his foot. And, and, and a number of court observers, we, again, no surprise here, given the overwhelming amount of evidence that was presented here. And everyone was wondering, what could possibly be the defense here? And again, at one point, the defense says he told jurors, if, it mis if a mistake was made, it doesn't mean it's a crime. It was clear he was nervous, given the amount of time that jurors had to make their decision, just four hours. They, in all likelihood, knew what the outcome was going to be. Caitlin? Quite a downfall. Jason Carroll, thank you for that report. In this time of global crisis, one senator's blockade of crucial military promotions has not let up. He has made clear today that's still the case. But now members of Senator Tommy Tuberville's own party are clashing with him. More on that next. Boiling point against one of their own colleagues. Republican senators mad at Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville and his Defiant blockade that has been going on for months now of nearly 400 military promotions because he says he's doing that in protest of the Pentagon's policy on reproductive rights. So the people who were kicking in doors in Fallujah, shooting terrorists in the face. We need this guy like yesterday. We want this guy. Coach, we need this guy. We're in a fight. We need the best people on the field. Undermine the safety and security of the American people during this perilous time just doesn't make any sense to me. Those football metaphors do not appear to have worked. What we do know is three new confirmations were pushed through today. That means for the first time since July, the Joint Chiefs do have a full slate of Senate-confirmed officers. That includes Admiral Lisa Franchetti, now the first woman to ever serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but... 
Tuberville tonight saying that he is standing by this blockade, which means I'll have to continue to do them one by one by one. We'll keep an eye on that. Thank you so much for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.